This is David Tarkington, the lead pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. The recording here is of our friend Daniel Ritchie, who is our guest speaker on April 14th, 2019. Be sure to check out his website, danielritchie.org. Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Good, man. It is, it is good to be with you guys this morning. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and hang a disclaimer on, uh, on this sermon this morning because I'll, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't travel with the, uh, with the kids very much, and, uh, and it's a bonus. But um, we, my wife and I, we were trying to have a good parenting moment last night and actually sleep, so we're like, we're going to separate the kids. Like, you know, you got to separate the fire and gasoline. So we were going to do one parent in each bed, one kid in each bed. And, um, and, and right as we're getting ready to wind down the night, both kids go, no, no, we want dad. <laughs> and, and so we, we slept three wide in a, in a queen bed last night, which meant my, my son was curled up in the fetal position in my rib cage, and, and my hurricane of a daughter, I don't know what she did. Like, she flipped and flopped, and at one point, about 3 o'clock this morning, uh, she was laying diagonally with her feet under my knees, and then her head was hanging off the side of the bed. And so, um, I think at about 3 o'clock this morning, my wife decided to save my daughter's life and, uh, and bring, bring her over into the bed with her. So, all of that to say, y'all, if, if I say things that don't make sense, if I almost speak in tongues in a Baptist church. I'm, I'm really, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm super sleep deprived. Um, but uh, hey man, it's, it's always an adventure uh, with, with our family for sure. So, but I'm, I'm thankful they're here, man. We, we made, we've already made some, made some good memories here, uh, here in the past 24 hours that we've been here in town. Um, but guys, what I want to do this morning is, is I do want to share a, a little bit of my story, uh, but then I also just want to, I want to get in, into God's Word because, you know, in, at the end of the day, my, my story does not change people's lives. My, my, my testimony does not call people from, from death to life. The gospel is the only thing that does that. And so I, it's, it's my hope that, that maybe just through my story, you can see the picture and the work of the gospel. Um, but man, it would, be, it would be far from me to, to give you the, the taste, but not the goods. And so, um, so first and foremost, I do need to get the armless elephant out of the middle of the room because so many people, it's like they see me and they go, what happened to this dude? Like, was, was he... Was it a shark attack or was it a, was it a, I had a guy ask me one time, he's like, was it a bear? Like, dude, that's a terrible bear. You just take both arms and just leave. Like, he was, he was not a hungry bear. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear all kinds of things, but I guess to, uh, um, to let the cat out of the bag, man, this is just, this is the way I was born. So this is, this is all I've ever known, um, but in that, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things in there was nobody knew that this was what was coming. Um, my, mom, my mom had a healthy pregnancy, my mom had two ultrasounds, and so the thought was all along the way that, you know, they're, they're going to have this healthy baby boy. And so nobody knows that, that anything is wrong literally until the moment that I come into the world. And the doctor there in the delivery room is holding this armless baby boy. And then not, not only am I armless, but I'm, I'm lifeless. I'm not breathing. I'm not moving. The 
the doctor tries to find a pulse and can't find a pulse. And so he, he very quickly just turns to my dad and he shows me to my dad so dad can see that, that I don't have arms. And then he asks, my dad, do you want us to let him go? And I think that is the, that's the snippet, that's the, the, that's the assumption right there that, that a life that is going to be full of frustration and darkness and hurt and toil is probably a, a life not worth living. And we see that play out in all sorts of facets uh, of, of our culture, from abortion culture to, um, to even how, how people in the, in the latter stages of life, in, in life are treated. And so for this doctor to look at this armless baby boy, it's like, why even bother getting started with his life? But I'm so thankful that by God's grace, my dad looked at that doctor and he's like, no, that's my son. You, you do whatever it is you can do to revive him. And so the doctors, the doctors rush me out and they start to work on me. But then the crazy thing that happens is in this whole process, my, my mother doesn't get to see me, touch me, hold me, nothing. And she knows, she knows something's wrong because it's like when I came into the world, she couldn't hear her baby boy cry. And then she, she obviously knew that something was desperately wrong because that, that now her boy is in another room. And so my dad has to go over to her and tell her everything he had just seen. And so they, they, they cried together. And then the, the only thing that my dad could think of to do was to pray. And his prayer was just, God, if you let our little boy live, we'll give him to you. What, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, God, we're, we're all in. And by God's grace, a couple, couple minutes later, you know, a doctor walks in with a kicking, screaming, armless baby boy, you know, and uh, God had brought me back. And I think a lot of my parents' worries had, had subsided. But then the, the interesting thing that started to happen is we're in this hospital in Greensboro that's a teaching hospital, and so when you're in a teaching hospital, man, any opportunity you have to, to learn about something you've never seen before, you're going to take the opportunity. So nobody had ever seen an armless baby boy before. And so there's, there's pediatricians coming in my room that are not my pediatrician. There's doctors and, and surgeons and orthopedic specialists. There's a hand specialist that comes into our room. And my dad's like, buddy, you, you're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> it's like, you're right. I'm sorry. And... Um, and all of these doctors, they would look me over and every single doctor but one gave a negative prognosis in terms of my life. And it ran the range from this boy is going to not be able to feed himself. He won't write. He won't go to like a normal elementary school. He'll be in special ed to all the way up. He'll never graduate high school. He'll never get a job. He'll never move out. And so again, here comes that fear, I think, flooding back into my parents' lives. But they just, even in the midst of all of the hurt and uncertainty, they kept thinking back to that prayer that they had just prayed. And their thought was, man, you know what? God saved our boy, so God's got this. And, um, and, and y'all, the, the best way I can, I can explain that is that's, that's exactly what, it, what the case is. You know, because it's, it's as if he had written on my heart literally from moment one, hey, buddy, you don't, 
you don't have have arms you know like everybody else like you people y'all are the deluxe model you know y'all got the y'all got the arms i'm the economy model like a little little stripped down little bare bones um but god god wasn't surprised and god wasn't surprised in how he had formed and fashioned me and it, it truly was as if, like, from moment one, I just knew, okay, I've got feet, so let's roll with it. And I truly did, like, my, my feet were my hands. And, and you know, uh, my parents would always talk about it. Even, even as a tiny little boy, if you sat me down on the floor and there were, like, a, a stack of wood blocks and a couple Hot Wheel cars, I'm going to do what every other red-blooded boy is going to do. I'm going to stack those blocks up as high as you can stack them, and then I'm going to take that Hot Wheel car with my right foot, and I'm going to smash it into those blocks and watch them tumble over. Like, nobody, nobody had to teach me how to do that. It, it was just kind of like, it, it truly was just God-given understanding of, of my situation. Now, there were, there were other times that it's just like, there is no good substitute for having a thumb or a wrist or a hand or elbows. You know, it's like... Um, I, I think of my, my daughter, Elliot, like she is a, she's a, she's a tornado wrapped in a hurricane, y'all, like she just, she goes hard, and, uh, and so there'll be times it's just like, she wears her little body out, and so she comes over to me, and she'll want, she'll want uppies, you know, she wants me to pick her up. And now there's times when it's just like, like any good daughter, it's like they come over and they don't have to say a word. They just stick their arms up in the air, you know, the international symbol of, hey, dude, let's do this, you know. And, um, and so for me, what I have to do is I can't, I can't pick my kid up like every other kid. And so I, I'll, uh, I'll like drop down to my knee and she'll come up behind me and she'll put her arms around my neck and her feet around my waist. And, and, and I wear like my little baby backpack. And so that's that's how I carry my daughter around. Now, when I was her age and I would walk over to my dad, there's no like sticking the arms up in the air, you know, so I would go over to my dad and I would lay down on the ground and I would stick my feet up in the air like roadkill and, uh, <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, okay, he wants, he wants us to pick him up. And so there, there were a lot of times when it was just like, it, it wasn't exactly a great substitute for hands, you know, like there's, Sticking a, sticking a spoon in between your toes is not a great substitute for, for having a thumb and, and, and your finger and a wrist. Like, um, writing at a, at a table. I remember, um, you know, when I, when I first started in, like, kindergarten and elementary school, it was such a struggle for me to write when my hips are 12 inches below my feet, you know? And, and, and I would start to get, like, uh, cramps in my legs and my feet and stuff like that. They were just... There were at times where it was just like you. you I definitely realized I, I was the the only armless person in a in an in an armed person's world. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, but man, God got me through it, and and all of the things that in the, in the world's wisdom that I wasn't supposed to do, God said, "Watch this," and I was able to to feed myself. I was able to write. I was able to go to normal school. I was able to. Um, I think do all of the things that every other redneck North Carolina boy does, you know, from, from driving go-karts, uh, riding four-wheelers, shooting a gun. Um, I mean, I remember, uh, I remember one time me and my best friend when I was 14, we found a bunch of fireworks, and when you're, when you're redneck, um, one firework is never enough, and so we... 
we took that whole bunch of fireworks and we broke them all open um, so we can make a bigger bomb and, uh, and, and set that off. And now, like, I look back and go, when you're already down two limbs, like, the last, <laughs> the last thing that you need to do is to, is to play with explosives, you know? Like, it, that, that takes the testimony to another level, you know, if I'm the no-armed, one-legged kid. And it's like... Okay, so I didn't lose the arms how you thought, but let me tell you a story about the leg. You know, like that, that spices things up. But I'm, I'm super thankful that, that God in his grace spared me of, of my redneck good times and, uh, and, and allowed me to, I mean, to graduate high school with honors, to, to go to school on a full ride, to meet uh, Heather in school and, you know, get married and have two kids and, and a hundred pound Great Dane and... You know, we get to we get to travel the or I, I get to just really just travel and speak and, and share the story of God's gospel in my life. And and that's that's so interesting that it's like that's that's how God has used a man that the world thought was an afterthought, that the world considered disposable. And I, I'm so thankful that, that within this physical body, I've never really had to struggle, but I have and, and still continue to just have this more of, a, of an inner war, inner turmoil. And, and, and some of you in this room, like you, you probably understand what it's like to be different and, and the weight that comes with that. That whether you're too tall, too short, too skinny, too fat, uh, different ethnicity, your name rhymes with something funny, you know, it's like, in, in this day and age, we will point out difference at the drop of a hat. And so when I'm sitting in here and, and in, in, in a room growing up, when I would sit in the cafeteria in my middle school, when I would go to the mall in the city I grew up in, I'm the only person having to eat a piece of pizza with their toes. I'm the only person trying to open a door with my feet. And so because of that, like people are staring, people are given, you know, the side eye, people are, are offering up rude comments. And so there's already insecurity in my heart and then to feel like I'm, I'm the messed up one, I'm the screwed up one, really started to just create in me a lot of resentment a lot of hurt, a lot of, I think, just darkness and isolation. And it got to the point where I, I, I clearly thought, well, people don't love me because all people do is just stare and laugh and point and say things. And clearly God doesn't love me because if God loved me, he would have given me arms. And so there was just a, a lot of frustration in my heart and God used, of all things, a dodgeball lock-in when I was 15. And y'all, like, if you're armless, like, dod dodgeball's not your sport. You know, like, you can't, you can't throw, you can't catch. Like, you were, you were literally a breathing pinata. And, um, and man, that night I just got, I just got pummeled. And, um, and I always say, like, li literally and figuratively, like, God used that to break me um, in, in every way. But then it was just so amazing that in such a, you would think, a fun-centered type event, 
that the youth pastor just gives a simple testimony, simple like devotion. It was the picture of God's love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that when we were completely weak and unable to remedy our situation, Christ takes on flesh, steps into this world, lives the perfect life we can never live, to die the death that we should die because of our sins and to be raised to life to show victory over sin and death so that all who trust in his life and his death and his sacrifice and his authority as our Lord and Savior that to all those who trust in him he gives eternal life and hope and purpose security and identity there was that night I trusted in Christ as my everything and I watched how he rewrote how I saw my life. I wasn't a prisoner anymore to what people said about me or how people looked at me. The only thing that mattered in my eyes was how God himself saw me and the things that he said over me, like the fact that I was a perfect creation that I was a rescued and redeemed son of God, that I've been given now an inheritance and a purpose and a mission to go and to make disciples without excuse, without a qualification. God was now sending me out. And y'all, that, that intimidated this kid because it's like I got saved at 15, God called me into ministry at 16, and I'm going, Lord, you got the wrong guy, because it's like, I'm, I'm fresh off of hating people, you know, like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with, with human beings at all, and so for God to call me into ministry, I'm going, God, you got the wrong guy, and I remember in, in that season, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that gives me the strength, it was like that motivational verse that I kept going back to and, and using that to, to fuel me and keep, keep me going. And, and I know it's a lot of, it, it's a motivational verse, I think, for a lot of us because like we, we get on that last quarter mile of our run and we will go, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. We'll, we'll say that in our, in our last set at the gym. We'll say that as we are looking at that coworker in the cubicle right beside us and we only have thoughts of pushing them down a flight of stairs like we you know you maybe you got that that kid or that grandkid that just whew, they they can they can test you and so we'll we'll use that verse a lot of times I think to just keep us going one step in front of the other and I remember just using it for a long time like that. And I was like, man, I, I want to dig deeper. I want to get to know just like this verse that's been so meaningful. And I started to study the book of Philippians. And, and w what I started to see was, man, just God giving like just the full perspective of his, his strength, his grace. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at Philippians 4 verses 10 through 13. And... Um, and so I think one of the things that we have, to, we have to know and understand is like within the greater context of this whole book of the Bible, the book of Philippians is considered the book of joy. Like this is, this is the book of what it means to build your life on the person and the work of Christ and to find wholeness and hope and contentment and our everything in Christ. But that is so 
interesting to come from a man who, as he pins these words, he's sitting in a prison cell because of what he's preaching, not knowing if he's going to live or die. So the guy who is, is in shackles, in darkness, away from everyone and everything he loves, he's penning the book of joy. And so for us here, I think it's so important to realize that our strength and our contentment and our hope will never come from our circumstances. And Paul's trying to remind, that, uh, remind us of that here in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, and you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking in need, for I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. And so what we see here, I think it's so interesting that here, here Paul is sitting there in a prison cell. The church at Philippi is really concerned about him. And he goes, you know what? I'm good. I'm, I'm not in need. Like you guys have no worries. I might live or die, but hey man, it's all good. Like Paul had, as, as he starts this whole book of Philippians off with in Philippians 1.21, Paul had gotten to the point where he had gone all in with Christ, and he says there at the very beginning of this book, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because for Paul, his very life was built on the person and the work of Christ. That every waking moment he was trusting in and resting in or proclaiming who Jesus was in the hope that one day faith becomes sight. And that when he passes from this life to the next, he sees the very one he's lived his whole life for. In church, that's our greatest hope. That's our greatest hope as believers is the best is yet to come. The best is never going to happen in this life. Your best life is not now. And your best life will never be now. Your best life is the moment that you pass from this life to the next and you see the one who gave it all to buy you back. That's our best life. That's our greatest hope. And that's the way we ought to live. And in an economy and in a culture and even in a church culture where a lot of times we will say in the American church, I'll be fine as long as I have Jesus and. As long as I have Jesus and my house or Jesus and my job, or Jesus and my truck, or Jesus and relationships, or Jesus and the praise of men, or Jesus and whatever you need in your life. And we think that's contentment, but that's idolatry. When we sit here and we crave and we love the gifts that God gives above the one who actually gives them. And for us to step away and for us to realize that even in our weakness, like Paul finds out when he's pleading with God to take away his thorn in the flesh, and God reminds him, my strength is perfected in your weakness. So Paul goes, okay, fine. Well, then I'll, I'll therefore most gladly boast about my weaknesses because when I'm weak, he's strong. That's what it is to be content. It's not based on anything that goes on in this planet. And that even if we lose every single thing on the face of the earth. We can say he's enough. 
Because Paul says in, in the chapter before this in Philippians 3, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. And when Paul says that, he means that because when Paul met Jesus Christ as his Lord, Paul did lose every single thing. Because when Paul was going to Damascus, he was a guy named Saul, a guy who had a tier one education. He had the Jewish version of of a Harvard or Yale degree. He's a guy who has the the government job and he's, he's well compensated. And he may not be respected, but his name is feared and his name is known. Everybody knows who Saul the persecutor is. Here's a guy who had built up everything and the moment he met Jesus, he lost all of that. He lost the good name. He lost the job. He lost the authority. He lost the money. Even so much the fact that in the days following Paul's conversion, nobody wants anything to do with him. Like the Romans hate him because he's bailed. The Jews and Christians don't want anything to do with him because they think it's a trap and he's just trying to sucker them in so he can you know, arrest them or have them killed. And so here's a guy who's literally lost every conceivable thing you could possibly lose. And Paul says, you know what? At the end of the day, it's worth it. There's anybody that's worth losing everything for. It's him. And for us as the church, that's our contentment when we see Jesus as our greatest treasure. As the psalmist says in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And church, may we get to that place when we see him as just that. That even if I lose the praise of men, the respect of my family, the zeros in my bank account, my house, my truck, my boat, that can still come out on the other side and go, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than that house, that boat, that job, that respect. Because for us, our circumstances don't define us and they never will. That's why Paul can sit there and say, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Like he doesn't need a good cushy life to affirm God's love for him. Like he knew that that's a promised reality in and through his life. And that even Paul realized like his circumstances and what's going on in his life, they don't define him, they refine him. Like like Peter says in 1 Peter 1, it's through our trials and through the things that we face that our faith is refined and strengthened so it may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So sometimes those things that you hate about yourself the most is the things that God is going to use to display His glory and His grace. And sometimes what we have to do is to choose how we're going to respond when life happens. Because sometimes life's going to happen and you're going to get the health diagnosis you never wanted. Or you're going to have a financial situation you didn't see coming. Or relational stress. Or just dealing, dealing with people. Like, if, you know, for me, of all of those years of not liking people, every once in a while, people will affirm that fear, you know, just by being jerks. Um, you know, it's like uh, a few years ago, me and a couple of buddies, we're, um, we're going into an Applebee's where I was born and raised. And, um, and these guys, like, these guys are huge. Like, uh, one's, one's probably six foot one, six foot two, depending on how much beef he's had. Uh, he's like 220, 230 pounds. 
Um, and then the other buddy is, is six foot four. Um, he does triathlons for funsies. Like, who does that? Um, and so it's like, here's these two giant guys and an armless dude. And so we're walking in like a, like a really bad joke uh, into into this Applebee's and so we're standing there in the lobby and we're waiting to get our table and these two like y'all North Carolina man it's it's like North Florida we we grow our rednecks on trees like they're they're everywhere and uh, and so like these two rednecks they walk in behind me and they see I don't have arms and they automatically start making fun of me they're they're saying all kinds of things and I'm sitting here I'm going whatever like after, after, at this point, like, after, after 30 years uh, hearing the junk of people, like, I've heard it all, you know, I'm, I'm not real bothered, but I hadn't heard it all, because one of the rednecks got really mad that he couldn't get under my skin, and so finally, he, he raises his voice a little, and he goes, man, it is so nice they let the kids from the circus come out and eat every once in a while, and I'm sitting here going, no, no, he didn't, like, <laughs> That was, that was a little bit of a low blow. And, um, and before I can do anything, one of my buddies who played hockey in college, um, that, and y'all, if you know anything about hockey players, they are, they are so kind and <laughs> loving and patient. He grabs one of these rednecks by his mossy oak jacket and he slams him against the wall and he puts his hand around his neck and he goes, you say one more word. And I'm sitting here going, um, no, let's don't do this. Because it's like, you know, this, this is the town I was born and raised in. This is the town, like, I could picture in my mind the, the newspaper is going to have a field day. Because, I mean, just think of it. Armless man curb stomps rednecks in an Applebee's bar fight. Like, that's, that's like one of y'all's Florida man headlines, you know? Like, that's... It's going to be awful. And, and so I, I slip in between these two guys real quick. And I, like, I back up my friend. And I'm like, what are you doing? I was like, you're going to get us arrested. We're going to go to prison tonight. I was like, I ain't going out like that. I was like, if you don't chill out, I'm going to kill you. And they're never going to find the fingerprints. And he's like, <laughs> he's like okay, okay. okay. I'm, I'm sorry. And so he... He kind of chills out, and so we go, and, and we get our table, and we sit down, and so we're sitting there in the booth, and y'all, I'm not kidding, I literally have, I have my Applebee's menu open, and it's like, I see this blob of camouflage right over the top of the, top of the menu, and the hostess literally sets these two rednecks right across the aisle from us, and they pick up right where they left off, they're putting their boots up on the table, they're making fun of me, they're talking about my mama, and I'm sitting here going, this is awful. And, and finally, I'm like, I'm on the inside of the booth, and I tap my buddy on the leg, and I'm like, hey, can you, can you let me out? I'm going to go kick them in the face. <laughs> and so it's like, we're all just like angry and frustrated, and we're, we're just done. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and so finally, it's like, I just think of this as like a revelation from the Lord. And, uh, and so it's just like this idea pops in my head. I'm like, that's it. And so I order my food, my food comes back, and I, I had intentionally ordered my food as a weapon because what, what I ordered was a full rack of ribs and french fries and sweet tea. And so, y'all, if you've ever had those ribs from Applebee's, it ain't that dry rub junk. Like, it is that, it is like that ooey, gooey, sticky goodness. And so what I did was like, it was literally like National Geographic special, lying on a gazelle, 
just I wiped out those ribs. Didn't touch, didn't touch a napkin, didn't touch the fries, nothing. And y'all, by the time I finished, it looked like there was a burgundy sock from the top, <laughs> from the top of my foot all the way over, and it was like it was like dripping down the arch of my foot. And I waited until those rednecks were staring at me, and I was like, "What's up, boys?" <laughs> and, and you. Y'all, you have never seen two rednecks get more quiet than those two boys got. And they just paid for their food and they left. And we're just all kind of sitting there in stunned silence. And my buddy goes, man, that's so much better than punching them in the face. <laughs> and it's like, yes, that, that, is, that is so, so much better than a felony. And it's like, man, in, in, in that moment, like there, there are so many times where it's like, yeah, I will, like I'll be in the grocery store and somebody will say something and I, I'll snap. Like life will happen and I will be a jerk or life will happen and I get frustrated and crushed and just done. But for us, like we have to see as believers, like our, our value God's care for us is not defined by what happens to us. And for us to truly see, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is by the grace of God that I am who I am. And whatever you have gone through, whatever sort of frame of life that you are in, it is for you to realize that God has brought you to this point for a reason. And that reason is simply to display His glory and His grace in all the earth. That's why Philippians 4.13 is there. It's not a motivational verse for us to be a better dad, better co-worker, better person. That verse is for us to realize that the call of Christ does not come with an asterisk. The call of Christ does not come with excuses. Like if you look down later on in, in Philippians 4, look, at, look in verses 19 and 20. Like the very reason that God supplies us His strength, He says in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The reason why Christ carries you along is so that with every step, every breath, every word, every opportunity, every relationship is your platform and your chance to speak of the glory and strength of God in your life. His strength in your life has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with Him. And so the moment that we see God's presence in our life as some sort of genie that we're seeking to call out and hook us up is the moment that we've missed it. God's strength in our life, God's purpose in our life is that He has made us to display His image in all the world. And that displaying just comes by trusting. God doesn't need an all-star. God doesn't need you to have the knowledge and the speaking ability of a pastor or small group leader. God just needs somebody who's willing to trust Him. Because at the end of the day, that's all He needs. He'll take care of the rest. You're not changing people's life with your life. He's changing people's lives with the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And that's all you have to give them. And so the challenge for us as the church is, do we? Do we do that? And maybe the challenge for some of y'all sitting in this church today is, do you see your everything wrapped up in the person and the work of Christ? 
Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? Is He your joy? Is He your everything? And if He's not this morning, here in a moment, I encourage you, come grab, come grab Pastor David and talk to him about what it means to trust in Jesus as your everything because it is the best decision you will ever make in your life. It is an identity-defining, hope-giving choice to surrender your life to Christ. And if you're sitting in here and you've said, yep, I've already made that choice. I'm all in. I'm doing this, Lord. Are you making much of Him? Are you using every breath, every step, every word, every relationship, every opportunity as a way to either live out the gospel or to use that as your opportunity to speak to God's gospel in your life? Because in this next week, as we look to Easter and as we celebrate the only hope the world has, are you sharing that hope with other people? Because if those people don't have the gospel of Christ, if they don't have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they will die and they will go to hell. And much of it will be due to the fact that people who trusted in Christ as Lord did not share the greatest news the planet's ever known. We have to be faithful, especially in this Holy Week season, to speak of the one who we celebrate over these next seven days. All you have to do is trust, church. He'll take care of the rest. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for your grace, your strength, your pursuit of us, your gospel. And God, I just pray for us this morning that all we do is trust. Trust you as our Lord. Trust you as our Savior. Trust you with every opportunity that we may have to tell a person about the hope that you bring into a world of darkness. Father, give us your strength.